There was a day when farmers purchased the Farmer's Almanac to anticipate the best time to plant crops during the year. Now, we have concepts like data-driven agriculture and smart farming. There is a 186-year-old company that has witnessed this massive change in the agricultural industry. That company is Deere, or John Deere. I am Tom Slaw, the Executive Director of the Technology and Services Industry Association. For those listeners not familiar with TSIA, we're a for-profit research institute, and we are on a mission to help our member companies run profitable technology business models that unlock real business value for customers. So let's get the Insight Engine going, and I am joined by Justin Rose, who is the President of Lifecycle Solutions at John Deere. Justin's welcome. Can, can you provide an overview of your role at John Deere? Oh, thanks, Thomas. Happy to be here. I am actually happy in some ways that our presence might surprise some people because I think it you know, serves to shine a light and open people's eyes to some of the really cool things we're doing. I joined John Deere in October of 2022, so I'm very new actually with the company, but I was on the outside as a consultant and had served them for almost 10 years. So I've known what I was getting into and uh, it's not, not full of surprises for me. I am, as you said, responsible for leading the company's worldwide life cycle solutions, which includes things like our parts and service uh, and performance upgrades for the equipment, but also managing our supply management and logistics team. So not a dull moment. Um, in addition, and probably the most germane thing to what we're going to talk about today is I am charged with driving John Deere's business model transformation, which will help us achieve our long-term aspirations of unlocking more value for customers, uh, providing sustainable solutions, and financially for us, migrating the business model from a one-time product sale to a mixed model of one-time sales plus recurring revenues. Yeah, and you know, for our listeners, as they hear that, it, that is going to sound very familiar to them, right? Because there's so many traditional software and hardware companies that are going through that exact business model transformation. And, you know, bef before we talk about that business model transformation, um, I, I just want to set the stage on how much your industry is changing. And for those that, that aren't close to it, the entire agricultural life cycle has undergone a, a massive technology transformation. And it starts with using AI to predict you know, optimum times to plant. Uh, there's crop and soil monitoring to optimize the application of fertilizer and herbicides. There's AI sensors for intelligent spraying. There's AI to predict the, the right time to harvest. There's autonomous robots to do that harvesting. I mean, just the entire life cycle is changing. And of all those new technologies, I, I'm just curious, what are you most excited about? What do you think is, is going to have the greatest impact on the industry? Uh, great question. Uh, you know, I think if you boil it down, there's really three areas where we see technology converging that will create enormous values for our customers. And maybe I'll start with sort of the first and easiest to understand that might be familiar autonomy, replacing a human operator in the cab of our machines. So, you know, if you take a step back at the 30,000 foot level, the rural communities that in large part we serve are undergoing real challenges around labor availability, even more acutely than the rest of the world in many cases. And autonomy ultimately helps you get that job done, even if you can't find the workers that you need. And for many of our growers, that means that, you know, they get to keep like mom and dad out of the cab of the machines in the middle of the night to, uh, to get the work done. But there's actually a lot more. People think about autonomy as just saving a few dollars on not having an operator in the cab. And there's a lot more to it. So 
for example, getting the job done at the right time is absolutely critical in agriculture. Yeah. You might not know, um, but there's typically in the Midwest US about a 10-day window from the time that it gets warm enough and it's not yet raining. And every seed that's going to get planted has to get planted in that window. So if you miss that, you essentially miss the entire season or end up with at least far less yield than you would have gotten out of the field. If you can't find the right labor in those 10 days, then it actually stands a chance to really financially disrupt a family farm. And ultimately, autonomy can help solve that. It's not just doing the work more efficiently. It's actually making sure you can hit the right timing to get it done. Um, you know, maybe a, a couple words about how it works as well. So from a technology standpoint, it's as cutting edge as you get. Perceiving the world through six cameras, we've got three in the front, three in the back. They see the entire field of view around the machine. Uh, each camera sees about 90 feet out and overlaps on the field of view so that you have redundancy. And they work just like a human eye in finding and matching objects and, and triangulating depth. You know, ultimately, those camera inputs get passed into a deep neural network that's trained on hundreds of thousands of images from across representative farms, uh, classifying each pixel in, you know, 100 nanoseconds uh, on the, the two onboard GPUs and determining if something's, you know, an obstacle like a tree or a branch or an animal, uh, it will stop the machine. And it also has a lot of false positives in our environment to work with, you know, a bird in the field or a shadow or some mound of dirt or whatever. So it's pretty standard as you think about from an autonomy system, but there's actually other foundational technology in it that is fairly game changing. I'll give you an example of that. Our precision perception system is driven by something that we call GNSS guidance. Uh, that actually steers the machine in like near perfect lines across the field. So with GPS technology, you know, you can get to be within, I don't know, three feet of where you need to be. But this technology actually gets you down to sub inch accuracy. And it does that because we invested a long time ago in 1998, 1999, in building a network that is, has global positioning across the entire uh, Earth's surface. And so we're one of only five companies that actually have the capability to do the geolocation and precision at, at this level. So ultimately, that means we know where the machines have been, the accuracy of where each seed is placed, and we can do that throughout the season to make sure we're not driving over the crops uh, that, that we've planted in the field. So it's pretty exciting. Um, you know, I said I did the easiest one first. I'll touch really briefly on two others that I think might be of interest to the listeners. You know, there's a platform we're building that's called Cincinnati, and I know you've seen some of this and some of the listeners may have as well, but think about the world's best farmer walking through a field and looking at each plant individually and then making decisions on how do I help that plant grow to its fullest potential, produce the most output. That's what our Cincinnati technology does. The first use case we're developing on that is called Sea and Spray, which is real. It's in market. It's real technology. It's not just a science project. And essentially, it looks through the field and determines if each piece of foliage is a plant or a weed and only sprays on onto those weeds. And so you can imagine for a second, the amount of savings from a herbicide standpoint, the environmental benefits of not putting all that chemical onto the field and the clear ROI for the farmer when they do the job with this technology. Uh, the scale of this, by the way, is absolutely enormous. So 
you know, a lot of people don't understand when we talk about big data in farming, it's really big data. There's 5 trillion corn plants planted every year in the world, right? So, you know, figuring out and distilling insights on each one of those constitutes a really, really, really big data and technology problem. And maybe one more, and I'll keep this as brief as possible. It's, uh, it's kind of the furthest out. But, you know, if I think about the very long term, there's a concept that some people will call computational agronomy. And really what that means in simple terms is that as we deploy all of this technology, you capture an enormous amount of data. And conceptually, you can use that data to optimize not just the spraying job or the planting job that we've talked about, but the entire system. And so that opens a wide range of potential future outcomes where ultimately this technology will help us produce more with less, meet the needs of the growing world, growing population, and, and you know, keep us busy uh, at John Deere for the next uh, 10 to 15 years at least. Well, you know, I, in a sense, kind of let you go there on, on explaining all those applications of the technology, because personally, I'm really intellectually interested and in, jazzed by this because this is huge impact huge impact on the amount of resources required you know, to grow food. It's huge impact on proving yields. Like you said, it's an impact on farmers' profitability. And you think about digital transformation, you think about tools like AI. I mean, everybody's super excited about ChatGBT and they're having it write their term papers. Okay, whatever. This is an application of technology, which is going to make a difference in everybody's life. And like you said, you're talking about trillions of plants involved here in our ability to be more productive as you know a global society. So I think this is wicked cool in terms of the technology. And, and by the way, you talked about the short window, you know, the 10 days there. Uh, I was raised in Ohio. You know, we call that spring. <laughs> 10 days, like that's it, man. <laughs> yeah. that's out. So I can totally relate to the short window there. Good weather to, to get things out. Um, so there's, there's no doubt that agriculture is becoming a tech industry. And as Mark Andreessen asserted, software is eating the world, which means you as a technology provider, you now have all the same challenges that uh, is facing a Microsoft or a Cisco or a Salesforce. So, so let's start with designing the right offers. How do you decide as a company what new technology solutions to roll out? I think this is a journey that a lot of companies like ours have to go down reinventing how they think about this. Even as you mentioned at the outset, we're a 186-year-old company. And you know the excellence of John Deere for generations has been on engineering amazing products and manufacturing them, working with our dealers and, and customers to sort of get them in the field. But we realized about 10 years ago that we actually needed to move away from a very equipment-centric worldview to say, how do I make the best tractor? How do I make my tractor slightly better next year and next year? to a more customer-centric point of view, where we say, you know, a customer doesn't tractor, the customer grows corn, uh, they do jobs with a tractor. And so if we really put the focus on our customers and switch our business structure to actually reflect that now, instead of having a tractor business and a sprayer business and a harvesting business, we have a business that's organized around what we call production systems, which essentially means that you know, in our corn production system, we have true experts that understand the growers PL. They understand how technology, data, our equipment can impact that for the better. And that serves as the basis to the product and service roadmap that we actually then decide to fund and ultimately engineer and bring to market. Doing that has been eye-opening for us and, and given us great insight into the challenges our customers face. And, you know, ultimately, 
we think there's something on the order of $150 billion of value to be unlocked through leveraging the technology that we see as, as relevant on our machines. That's obviously a wide range of things, including things like we've talked about, saving on fertilizer or herbicide, ultimately driving higher yields in the same amount of land, and then getting the work done faster, like we talked about in the autonomy example. Yeah, you know, it's interesting as we watch technology companies who historically were focused on making a great product, which is what you described, right? And again, it doesn't matter if you're an enterprise software company, you're John Deere and you're making a, a tractor. And now moving to be more focused on the customer outcomes, the customer process. The thing I'll tell you, and this is working in your favor, is companies like John Deere who are vertically oriented by nature, right? You're focused on agriculture. You know, when you lead into this, you get there quicker because it's all you focus on, right? It's not like you're trying to sell a tractor to financial services and manufacturing and a bunch of different vertical industries. And so the ramp is faster, right? Because you're like, hey, this is the industry that we have to know. So I think it's going to be exciting to watch you know, you go on that journey because as you do, you're just going to be able to create more and more compelling offers for the customer. But you said it, we have to understand what the customer is doing day in and day out at a level of intimacy that historically we didn't have to worry about. We just had to worry about having a great product. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating to watch. And, you know, the next thing you start to worry about, you know, you start to come up with these new solutions is adoption of those solutions, right? And and this is, again, something that you share with all your technology peers. And as you come up with these new, cool, awesome technologies, you're dealing with a community, maybe they're you know, more conservative, maybe they're slower to adopt. So how do you drive adoption within this industry? Well, today, I would honestly say we rely a lot on others. Mm -hmm. And first and foremost, our dealers. You yeah. know, I mentioned earlier the importance of our dealers. They have very personal local connections with the customers and you know close a lot of the gaps to helping them understand the technology and how to get the most out of it there's also a really active social network you might be surprised farmer twitter oh, really? uh, has, yeah. is, uh, is kind of a big deal there's a lot of uh, a lot of commentary how to use something uh, talking about practices there's there's a lot of farmers that are moonlighting as technologists yeah. so so that's good. And there's a lot of motivation, obviously, and, you know, keeping up with your neighbor and seeing them do something that maybe you could do to, to make your operation better, too. But, you know, that's today. I think we're in the future, we have to mature on this. And so, you know, by the time probably this uh, discussion gets released, we will actually be announcing a new global customer success lead at John Deere, who will be charged with building a customer success function for our business. Now, I know that term is maybe a bit overused uh, uh, in some industries, but what we mean by that is taking data off of hundreds of thousands of machines in real time or near real time, determining what customers are using our technology and what aren't, and then really deeply understanding the why that's happening and designing interventions to increase and boost utilization. And those interventions could be everything from a push notification to the operator in the cab that says, you know, you're um, sub-optimizing your yield by 5% because you haven't changed the settings in the right way. Or it could be that we find that potentially the technology we're bringing to market, you know, has to be modified a little bit. Perhaps, uh, you know, simple things around user experience uh, to be able to, you know, make it more accessible and, and more easily used. So hopefully that function will serve as a hub 
for helping us drive that utilization, that adoption, everything from a first trial to a renewal at the end of the day. Yeah, you know, so there's a couple of comments you made there, and I just want to build off of that. And so the first one is, you know, what you really said in the vernacular of, of most of our listeners is you're a channel-intensive company. You go to market through a channel, which many tech companies do. And as you go into a model where you are, again, more focused on adoption, uh, the customer outcomes, et cetera, you have to figure out how to work with that channel and augment that channel. Right. And so that leads to, you know, hey, we're going to stand up a customer success capability. And the second thing I'll comment on is so for seven, eight years, we've been doing an organizational structure survey and we test on what distinct organizations are in place in a tech company. And seven years ago, most tech companies did not have a customer success organization. A couple of years ago, that became a common practice. And now we have John Deere <laughs> standing up a customer success organization. So it tells you how ubiquitous. That has become so. You just like other large tech companies, you know, have these partners, these resellers that take your products to market. And as we just talked about, the fact that you're creating capabilities to augment them, but how is it changing the way that you think you're going to work with these resellers directly? Great question. You know, actually, I I read some of your books and publications from ten years ago about enterprise software companies that were going through this. And one of the things that really stuck with me was the ability to host in the cloud, go direct to customers. In many cases, was really really disruptive to you know the reseller distributor partner network. And in our context, that's an interesting one because if I had to call out, you know, one of our, our most significant, what I think competitive advantages is it's, it's our dealer network. And so uh, we need to find a way, as you said, to augment them and make sure that we keep them in the loop because they bring a, a lot to the table for us. So we're investing in a wide range of technology changes with them, upskilling and capabilities Things like, you know, a new dealer business system that will give us a common 360 degree view of the customer that will allow us to, you know, more seamlessly connect. We have a, a product that we've uh, started rolling out and about about 100 dealer groups on now that we call Expert Connect that helps them, you know, take actually inbound calls, texts, you know, communications from the customers and organize all of that and keep it running. It actually uses chat GPT to summarize some of the notes in the back end. So there's a lot that we're doing. You know, our network of resellers and dealers is very enthusiastic, I would say, on the whole. You know, of course, there's some that are skeptical and, and want to see how this will play out. But one of the big advantages, at least of our channel, is that they are eager to go to the next horizon, disrupt themselves, and build the capabilities they need. So it'll be a journey. I think that will play out over the course of the next five or six years. This isn't something we're expecting to change overnight in our industry. But I see a lot of promise in the short time I've been here that we can definitely get there. I mean, I'll just give you some observations. What I've seen is other companies have gone through this same journey, right? As they have more as a service, as they have more of their product directly connected. There is no doubt that it is disruptive to the historical channel relationship. And so if you ignore that, which you're not, right? If you ignore that and say, well, I don't really want to say anything. I mean, that's the losing strategy. You got to lean into it and say, hey, this is going to be different. As you do that, you know, what we consistently see is some of the channel partners will make it and some won't, right? They'll be like, hey, I've got a legacy business model. Um, could be a lifestyle type business model. I've been doing this for years in the old model and I don't really want to have to retool or rethink my business model. And that's fine, but that, that's going to happen for sure. But one of the most important things you said is that we are building new capabilities that are value-add to these resellers. So I'll take a guess here, right? So you're getting telemetry you never had before, probably coming from your equipment. 
you can now do analytics and, and provide insights back to your resellers that they never had before about what's going on with their customers. And you investing that, standing up that platform, presenting that as a value add to your resellers is a winning move there, right? Because we do believe in these new, more digital models, channel is not irrelevant. They're just as important as ever. It's just a different relationship. We actually think it becomes an even more intimate relationship between the manufacturer like yourself and those channel partners because you're sharing you know, information about that customer at levels that you never had before. So, you know, I think it's exciting times. I agree with everything you're saying. For me, a, an additional learning is in addition to the data we get and the capabilities that we're building that helps migrate us to this new business model, it also unlocks a lot of value in the traditional parts business, for example. Yep. So, you know, I mentioned labor as a constraint. Our dealers have massive labor constraints as well for technicians and, and things. And so if we can help them diagnose uh, machine failure faster, make sure that if they have to go out in the field or when the machine comes into the shop, they have the exact right parts, exact right tools, they know exactly how to do the job. You can start to also boost throughput of just the traditional operations. And so there's a lot of goodness, you know, just around the, the entire ecosystem to be created. And if you think forward, right, because obviously, I mean, things like not only autonomous, but electric vehicles are going to become a common way to go, right, for these tractors down the road. And I was driving when I was out in California last week in a friend's new electric pickup. And he told me that the first scheduled maintenance was at 100,000 miles at 100,000 miles, and it was only to sort of check and make sure that the regenerative brakes were still working okay. So if you're a reseller that used to make most of your money, you know, changing this part, changing that part every couple thousand miles, and you're now in a world where these vehicles need service every 100,000 or whatever it is, right? You obviously need a different business model. And that day is clearly coming to your industry, and it's not going to happen tomorrow. But again, you know, your resellers have to be thinking about what's my role when that becomes the future, which again, I think is exciting, but it's different. <laughs> so um, along that issue of maintenance, recently you made a the company, made a public announcement to allow farmers to maintain John Deere products. And when I read that, I, I actually had two thoughts that struck me. So the first one is I totally get why farmers or any individual would say, hey, I want to be able to work on my own tractor. I've been doing that. You know, my father did that. My grandfather did that. You know, I want that right. But as these tractors become incredibly sophisticated computers on four wheels, you know, does that make sense? And, and by the way, you know, I'm not really lobbying Apple to be able to open up my phone and start changing this and changing that because I'm like, I, I don't want to deal with that, right? So what was the rationale behind that recent announcement? Yeah, well, maybe let me go back. Not everybody probably know uh, the details of, uh, you know, what's been happening. So in January, as you said, uh, John Deere and the American Farm Bureau Federation signed a memorandum of understanding that ensures farmers and ranchers have access to the right tools and resources that they need to diagnose, maintain and make most repairs to their machines. And so for us, this formalizes our longstanding commitment to the farmer's ability to work with either an independent repair shop or have access to tools and resources they need to you know, do the repairs themselves. There's been a lot of questions, and I, I think it's natural in some ways as the machinery gets more complicated and complex that it challenges people and their ability to actually do the repairs, or there can certainly be unintended consequences. But we've tried to be clear and want to continue to be clear that you know we certainly support the customer's ability to safely maintain, diagnose, and repair all of their equipment. 
We have a set of tools, information guides, diagnostic equipment, et cetera, that we've made available for farmers to work on their machines, including things like remote access for technicians so that they can provide long distance support. You know, I think ultimately we just need to continue to enable people to work on the machines and, and understand the machines as best we can. But recognize that the future of the industry is more and more technology oriented, more and more software oriented. And we need to be practical about where we can have people opening up the source code or, or not. So there's real trade-offs, but we've been supportive and want to continue to be so. I'll say this because you probably can't in a sense and shouldn't, and I completely commend the position you guys are taking, but I think about the home auto mechanic, right? Like the person who used to change their own brakes and, you know, do their own spark plugs. And I mean, how many people do you know right now are popping the hood on their car and trying to do anything, right? I mean, it's it's not practical anymore. I mean, you open it up and it's a big computer and everything's connected. You, I mean, you're not going to touch any of that. You you have to take it into the shop and, and your industry is on that same journey. You know, that's just a brutal reality of it. And it'll be interesting to see because there will be an inflection point there, right? Where it just doesn't make sense anymore to, to people to try to, to self-serve on such complicated technology. But again, I was just curious what the rationale was. You know, you and I, several months ago, we had this great discussion about mission-driven companies and that compelling missions help attract talent. And you guys have this initiative uh, that people can see on your website. It's called the Leap Initiative. And it, it focuses on some of the things you've already talked about, right? Really driving new technologies and applications that are going to revolutionize the way people can do agriculture. And, and, and that's, I think, personally, you know, a really cool and noble mission. And so in reality, I mean, you, you could help the planet by enabling these farmers to use less resource and generate more food. And so having a mission like that, how does that resonate when you're going after technical talent? Because that's the other conversations you and I have had. If you think about somebody, could be somebody leading customer success, it could be a computer science major and they're coming out of school and, and they're going, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to, you know, one of those name brand tech companies are, no, no, I'm going to John Deere. <laughs> and so they look at him and go, what are you going to be doing to John Deere? So tell me about how you use mission to sort of counter that. Yeah, I remember those great General Electric commercials from years ago where, you know, they'd be at a party and the kid would be trying to say the amazing stuff he was going to do with technology and everybody's interested in, you know, the person that's making an app to uh, change uh, the phase on your uh, your picture. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But um, So we've got maybe some air cover over the years from that. But, you know, look, you alluded to it. I honestly think part of being a 186-year-old company is that being driven by a higher purpose and the fact that we're that old and have been successful for that long, I don't think those are coincidental. Mm -hmm. We describe our purpose as we run so life can leap forward. And what that means to us is that we're delivering these intelligent, connected machines to revolutionize agriculture and unlock customer value in sustainable ways. Now, there's a lot packed into what I just said, but really, I don't think there's that many companies or, or executives that can wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, I have a business where we can truly help our customers be more successful help drive sustainable outcomes and make money ourselves. And pretty much every one of our technologies and products checks all three of those boxes. It's obviously a big job. And I think, you know, to your question, it's been resonating really strongly with talent. It probably takes a little more explaining than, you know, some of the more mainstream technology jobs. But we've started to put together some really interesting campaigns to go and reach out to talent where we say things like you can choose to scroll uh, your social media feed 
or you can code for a company that's helping you know build shelter and feed the world. You know things like that to try and draw the distinction and the, the real merit in what we're doing. Uh, I think we're finding that's a pretty great value proposition for the talent that we're talking to. And it's an opportunity that not a lot of tech companies can offer to have that intersection across all those areas of goodness. And frankly, the people that we're hiring, maybe we're attracting people that are really attracted to that mission because our employee feedback tells us that the company's reputation, the values of the company are among the top reasons why they're choosing to work for John Deere, that they're inspired by that higher purpose. So once we get a recruit in the door, we also ask them, why did they come and are we meeting their expectations? And again, the good news is 90% are saying that we are and that we're consistent with those values that we're laying out. So I think it's a really, really powerful lens through which to view the world, reason to get out of bed every morning to go to work. And I hope that we can keep delivering that for certainly the rest of my career. I've said this on this podcast before with other guests, and that is I really do believe mission matters more than ever in terms of attracting talent. And that's why I wanted to talk about that with you, because I think it does resonate with this next generation of talent. And I will say the other cool thing, you know, my father worked for U.S. Steel, and one of the things about his generation is they could point at what their company made, right? They could say, we made that. And I'm sure that there's a, a really cool thing when one of your employees is driving on the road and that there is this massive tractor and he's like, that's my company. We made that. So I think there's there's a cool factor there that gets lost when you're completely in the world of the cloud and software and everything else. I was just going to say, I, I have an eight-year-old little girl and I got to tell you, there's nothing better than when we're driving around and she's pointing out tractors in the field saying, no, daddy, there's a John Deere. And it's like, Real pride, and it's cool that she can associate that and feel that too. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a wicked cool. So, in talking about being attracted by mission, etc. So, you left a very successful career at BCG to take this role, and I'm sure that that was not an easy decision or a no brainer. But now you're in it. <laughs> You've had the baptism here over the past couple of months. What are some of the biggest differences so far from being in that world of consulting, and now you have your hands on the wheel and you're at this 186 year old company? Yeah. You know, on, on making the decision, I mean, first I'd say it was kind of hard and easy at the same time. I was really proud of my career at BCG and, and the work we did. Uh, but I'm sure you can hear the passion that I've got about the mission and about the company. And I think everybody feels that. A funny story, I started the conversation with my wife about starting to consider moving and and, you know, she played it out with me for about a day and there were lots of pros and cons. And then she finally said, Look, Justin, I'm I'm happy we can keep talking about this as long as you want, but we both know you're taking this job. So it was, uh, you know, I think she could see through that. That's that's where this yeah. was going. But, um, you know, in terms of the differences, there's for sure some real differences. My career in professional services, you really had a luxury, I would say, to focus on a single problem with a team that's like very singularly focused and dedicated. A lot of whom, by the way, are early in their career and don't have families and other obligations and things like that. So that makes it easy and you run really hard at things, you solve it, and then you kind of move on. You know, at Deer, there's obviously a lot of things that are happening around the company, a much bigger organization to motivate and help manage. But what I find and what I really like as I reflect a couple months in is when you get it right, you can really make a lasting impact. So it's slower, but it's more powerful, actually, to uh, to kind of help change the world in this way. So that's the biggest difference that I think I'm seeing and what I'm really enjoying about it. That's good. I mean, again, that's a big shift. In, as you know, in the world of management consulting, a lot of times people are in for a couple of years and then they're they're on. But you were there for a while and it was definitely lifestyle and you know, obviously you enjoyed it and you were very good at it. So it's it's a big change. But I'm glad to hear you're enjoying it and it was a no brainer decision. So um on this topic of careers, I'd love to ask people 
about their career trajectories. And you attended Northwestern, I think undergrad, and their MBA program. And then you went into investment banking, which kind of, that's very natural, right? And from, you know, the MBA. And the, but now you're working for this company that makes tractors, right? So there's no way I don't think you could have predicted that when you were coming out of Northwestern in the MBA program. So what career lessons do you take away from that? Or what would you impart to other people as they're starting their career? Well, look, you might actually argue the most remarkable thing is that I've really only had so few stops. You know, it's, I think there's not many people that are 20 plus years into a career and have really worked at two companies. So for me, what's mattered, I think that focus and dedication has really worked for me. I, I always tried to take the long view and not optimize for quote unquote me in every situation. So, you know, I, I said, look, I'm just going to be flexible. I'm going to work across whatever problems are put in front of me, try and learn. You're new, like you don't know kind of anything going in. And so everything you do is new and different. And I built a set of mentors that I think really appreciated that attitude. And ultimately that flexibility and dedication that I gave to them and, and helped them came around and resulted in them in creating unique opportunities for me, giving me responsibility, allowing me to find ways to shine. And so people talk about paying it forward or, or virtuous cycles and circles. And, and I think to some extent, that's kind of the story of my career as well. Maybe the other thing that I would say has really been a lesson for me links to why I'm a deer and probably what you hear in me saying today, which is just passion. Like I, I know some people think about work as defining your life. And I know we all spend a lot of time at work. And so it's a big part of our life, but I've always aspired to make it more than just that. And, and for me, that means using the platform, whether at BCG or now at John Deere, to take big swings at big problems and try to leave a mark and leave the world better than I found it. And that sounds a little bit trite and um, you know maybe canned in a way, but I really mean that. And I think that I try to really consider that when I think about every new opportunity that could come my way. You know, for me, John Deere, like it's the opportunity of a lifetime. And I can't think of a better place that's more foundational to human civilization, truly, to helping drive more sustainability for the world, to helping a, a group of really hardworking people that we can help be more successful in their careers as farmers or construction workers and so on. And I'm super proud of being on the John Deere team because of that. That's awesome. You know, I, I do want to just click into this comment you made about mentors. And, you know, for, Younger people in the audience listening, because there's no doubt that if you can find some helpful mentors, it is game-changing for careers. I personally experienced that. You're saying you've experienced that. So what do you think the key is to identifying and connecting with a good mentor? How did, how did you do that in your career? It's a great question. I agree with the power of it. You know, To me, I think even when I was young and earlier in my career, trying to find a way to build both the professional and personal bridges to people, you know, common interests or, or choosing to take an interest. You know, again, I think that especially in a world of Zoom and pandemics and whatnot, people have become in some cases more transactional, the ability to build some of the social equity that just happens when you're on the road with somebody and grabbing a late night dinner or a coffee early in the morning, you know, evaporates. And so, you know, I try and find ways to build bridges and, and make the relationships that I have closer to friends than colleagues in a lot of ways. And then I'd go back again to what I said, attitude matters a lot. A can-do attitude where if you're asked to help, you're going to give it your all. You're not going to put conditions on it. You're not going to say, well, I'd like to do that. But, you know, I really think that my next step in my career should be, you know, something kind of different. So I'm going to pass. 
I think if you can keep a, a can-do attitude, those mentors will actually be attracted to you in a lot of ways. You don't have to seek them because people want to work with people like that. When you put that on the table, I was going to say, you know, I, I believe that mentors are attracted to both talent and attitude. When they see people that are leaning in and, and they want to be helpful and they want to learn, then a good mentor will go, wow, that, this is a good place for me to spend my time. So I, I think that you're right. Yeah. That vibe that you give off is really important. The other thing I'll put on the table is because I'm you know, I'm experiencing this in my own career as I watch people as I get older, is I, you know, I would encourage younger people to just raise their hand and, and ask Sometimes, right? Because I, I, you know, sometimes I'll have people approach me like, gosh, I don't want to bother you, but, you know, I'm just kind of curious. Could you give your perspective, help me out on this? And I think that people more senior in their career are happy to do that and, and are very approachable. And so I think that's the other thing I would encourage anybody younger is not to be sort of afraid and go, gosh, I don't want to bother that person. I don't want to ask him for their opinion or advice or whatever. You know, do it. I mean, and if, they, and if they blow you off, then guess what? That's not somebody you really <laughs> wanted their opinion anyway. Um, but I, you know, so, so raise your hand out there and build these relationships because I think what, you know, you're saying, Justin, and, and I've experienced is it's, those are really key to your professional development as you're going through. Yep. Well said. I think it gives you a better chance for success and makes it a lot more enjoyable along the way. So important on both dimensions. Absolutely. Well, hey, I really appreciate your time today. I hope folks learned, you know, a little bit about a different industry. And you know, we always close these episodes with a question of the day. And with TSIA, we've been talking about digital transformation forever here. And so the question of the day is, if you think digital transformation is not coming to your industry, think about a 186-year-old company that is in the thick of it. Thanks for joining us. Cheers. Cheers.